Author William Shakespeare certainly appreciated the power of graveyard and ghostly apparitions in his novels. He penned these blood-curdling lines that I'll share to start us out. The witching time of night, when churchyards yawned and hell itself breathes out contagions of this world. Now could I drink hot blood and do such bitter business as the day would quake to the cold. Shakespeare was able to fuel the nation's love of a good, terrifying tale. There's nothing that compares than sitting petrified by the fireside's flickering light to hear ghostly stories of tales from long ago. Fortunately, even today, the art of the storyteller brings these tales to life in a tradition, shall we say, will never die. For this special Halloween podcast, we're going to share scary stories around the campfire, all based on actual historical events. We hope you enjoy. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller, conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Well, welcome back, folks, to the second annual Halloween Campfire Tales. This is something we tried last year and kind of a turning point for us if you will we started adding sound effects that everybody seemed to enjoy and seemed to go over pretty well so we decided uh, we're going to continue that legacy so we're going to be sharing various tales around the campfire for halloween and i'm going to kick things off with a story of bloody mary you may have heard the urban legend of bloody mary where you peer into a mirror and state the words three times over bloody mary bloody mary bloody mary Tonight, however, I plan to take you back to the real origins of this terrifying tale from centuries past. Now, according to legend, there was truly a wicked old woman that lived deep in the forest and bogs of a nearby village. Her face was hideously disfigured in what must have been a terrible accident. The legend said that she was so horrific in appearance that no one could look directly at her. So she hid in the dark forests and the swamps. In lonely solitude, she thought of nothing else, and so longed to be able to look at herself in the mirror and see the young, beautiful woman that once stood there. She was a good person at heart and at soul. As it was known, she would come around to peddle her herbal concoctions to the townspeople to try to aid them and help them, but they kept their distance, fearing Mary's wrath. Rumors spread that she had made a pact with the devil and had reverted into the dark arts. Children would often throw rocks at her and mock her name, dubbing the tauntful nickname Bloody Mary. The old woman ran with pride and shame, wanting nothing more than to help the people with her herbal remedies, and somehow, if possible, to regain that formal youthful self. It said her wails and cries could be heard at night, carried across the winds of the dark forest and the bogs. It was shortly after that young girls started going missing from the nearby village, never to be seen from again. Finally, a group of brave townsfolk decided to form a search party, literally becoming a witch hunt. Within a day, a single shoe was found belonging to one of the girls, then a torn fragment of a dress of yet another, all leading to the witch's cottage deep inside the forest. An angry mob approached the old woman's hut one night with torches and banging on the decrepit door. Mary, Mary, bloody Mary, I know you're in there. Open up at once. The frightened woman cracked the door asking what they wanted. One of the fathers, a large burly man, burst into the room knocking the woman down on the dirt floor. The mob demanded to know where the young girls were. Mary slowly rolled over. I... I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I just don't know. As her face turned towards the heart of the fireplace, the townspeople gasped. Her face was no longer hideously deformed, and it appeared she was younger. Something was amiss. But as a priest stepped forward and stopped the mob, he pleaded with them. 
Nothing can be proven. It is wrong for us to judge this woman without the intervention of the Lord and law. The village mob finally left the old woman, but not until one man in particular, a man by the name of Marcus Miller, kicked the woman several times while she huddled and cried in the floor. It is said that next week, the Miller family was awakened by their own daughter leaving their house one night as if in a trance. She walked deep into the woods. Marcus grabbed his coat and lantern and weapon and followed for his daughter with a small group of the townsmen. They found the Miller's daughter standing at the edge of the forest. Along with her stood Mary, holding a glowing, gnarled wand. They saw the life essence literally being drawn from the young girl's body into the wand and onward to Mary, who was getting younger and more beautiful by the minute. Mary realized the mob was approaching, so she turned and fled deep into the swamp, releasing her clutch on the young girl where she collapsed. The men pursued and captured Mary in the woods. There they tied her to a tree, stripped her of her clothes, and beat her with switches and stones. They then collected wood and twigs and tossed around the base of the tree, ultimately throwing one of the lanterns and igniting the fire of the bonfire. When they left the woman burning at the stake, they were ashamed of what they had done so they could not stay and watch. It is said the woman's screams of agony were heard all the way back to the village. So much as so, a priest and some of the others came to the woman's screams. However, they reported she was not found. Only the fire smoldering with the damp twigs and the wood that the men had left, and that the burned ropes were neatly curled and laid beside the tree. They followed her barefoot tracks in the mud back to her cottage, but by way of three freshly dug graves. There in the shallow graves they found three of the missing girls' bodies, which seemed to be mummified and drained of their youth. Bloody Mary was never to be seen again. However, in her lust to seek everlasting youth, it is said she continues to prey upon young children that mock her name, and especially those who are foolish enough to attempt to summon her. There are actually three other theories of the legend of Bloody Mary. Mary I of England, Mary Tudor, who had Protestants put to death for heresy and earning the nickname of, literally, Bloody Mary. The second is that of Elizabeth Bathroy, known as the Queen of Blood, who was convicted for torturing and murdering more than 600 young women for their blood, which she believed by bathing in would actually give her youth. And the third is Mary Worth, who was executed at the Salem Witch Trials. Regardless of what you believe to be the origin, legend has it that if you stand in front of a mirror in a room illuminated by a single candle flame and then chant, Bloody Mary's name three times, her disfigured ghost will appear in the mirror and take you to your bloody doom, ultimately giving her immortality and precious youth. Well, that was a that was a nice tale there. I'd never heard that before. Well, you know me, Eric. I'm a I'm a sucker for a good monster story. Oh, are you? I'm gonna give you a, a series of anecdotes here, some stories that come from my family and that of some friends of mine. When I was younger, my grandfather had a chicken coop. You know, he uh, moved here from California. He was a cobbler by trade, which if you don't know what that means, it means he was a shoe repair guy. And I remember, you know, watching my grandpa do that growing up. Uh, that was his business. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you've lived in the area and you're familiar with Waynesville, he had gateway shoe repair. That was my grandfather's business. You know, he built the house that he lives in, in, in the Lakeway area. Well, he lived in, I should say. He passed away. But he had this chicken coop. And he noticed from time to time some chickens would go missing. And, you know, when you live in the country, that's bound to happen. And so my grandfather decides one day he's going to stay up and he's going to find out what's happening. So he's there, he's kind of out there on the back porch, and he hears the chickens making a commotion, and he, he grabs his gun and he jumps up to find out what's going on, and there's a there's a fox in the hen house. <laughs> you know, it's an old tale. So he manages to isolate that fox, and he, he does what any good farmer does, and he puts an end to that fox's life. Well, he doesn't know what to do with the fox, so he just kind of chucks it up on a fence post. And growing up, I remember this fence post, and this fence post was taller than I was as a child, so, you know, again, it wasn't, like, right there close to the ground, but who knows how tall it really was. I was a kid. Everything was bigger back in those days, at least as far as I remember. Now, the story goes that some point throughout that night when something happened, and when my grandfather went out later the next day, that fox's body was gone off that fence post. 
and all around the base of the fence post were these gigantic footprints as if someone with huge bare feet had come to take that fox's body off that post. We live in rural Missouri. We grew up in the Lakeway area. There's a lot of woodland there. A lot more, lot more back then than there is now. You know, so who's to say? I'd like to think that my, my grandfather has had a Bigfoot story and he didn't realize it, which I think he did. My grandpa was, was a storyteller and he kind of, he knew how to sucker you in on those kinds of things. Now, uh, my mom, she told a story. When her and my father got married, which would have been about 77, if my timeline is correct, I understand my mom was pregnant with me when they got married, so I'm going to assume it's that, you know, that year. They decided to go on their honeymoon, and they wanted to go up north. Well, they went up north. They were going to cross into Canada, which, according to the stories I've heard, apparently they did illegally at one point. (laughs) They came across a road barrier that my dad decided to move, and it turned out that that was actually the, the, you know, the border. (laughs) So no one, no one, no one, my dad, the the stories I'd heard about him, that doesn't surprise me in the least. Apparently they were driving through some, some very backwoods, you know, heavy forest, just trees, deep, deep forest, wherever you look. And my mom really had to go to the bathroom. So they stop at one of these roadside rest stops. And, you know, even when you pull into one of these that's fully lit up in the, at nighttime, it's still shady, you know, a little bit. And apparently they got out to go do their business. And it's just forest. It's just basically an outhouse in the middle of the woods is kind of the way my mom described it. You know, it's, it's, it's a rest stop. There's some restrooms there, but just little little more than an outhouse kind of off the side of the road in the woods. And they're, you know, in unfamiliar territory. And it's nighttime, just dark and scary and you know like any young woman she wants her husband to escort her to the bathroom so she goes and while she's in there she, they hear this ear shattering scream from the woods nearby and my mom says she remembers hearing my dad sprint to the car the door slammed shut a <laughs> uh, really really good guy my dad there apparently and i mean that was it now the locals told him it was probably a mountain lion and it could have been who knows but it, it made my mom's blood run cold and scared my dad, who at that point in time was either in the military or recently had gotten out. So, you know, my dad was kind of a tough guy back in the day. He became a police officer for a while after that. So it's not like my dad was a wimp, you know. And, and of course, you know, I'm, I'm a red-blooded American boy. I'd like to think that my dad was kind of a manly man. So I'd like to think my dad wasn't scared off by something that wasn't at least terrifying, you know. And my brother and I, you know, when, when we were younger... After my parents got divorced, my mom would, would go out at night, you know, to, to have mom time, I guess. I don't know how else you'd phrase it. But, you know, that's how she met my stepdad, so I can't complain too much about that. But she would leave me and my brother at home, and I would babysit my brother. And we would stay up late at night. And this is in the days of, you know, VHS rental stores, if you want to pinpoint how old I can be. And we would rent oh, scary movies. You know, we watched... Watch the Lost Boys and Ghoulies and Critters and then all these old, old movies. Friday the 13th films. I mean, really, we watched stuff we shouldn't have been watching. But that was sort of how we were babysat. You know, I, I would watch these movies with my brother and then we'd go to bed. Um, back in those days, we were, we were poor. We shared a bed. We didn't have air conditioning, which means when you go to bed, you leave the windows open. So my brother and I are laying there in bed. And like any good siblings, you know, we're poking and prodding and talking and giggling and carrying on. My mom wasn't home at that point. So we're there by ourselves. And, I mean, suddenly the night is just ear-shattering screech. Some primal scream. And we, I mean, we, I mean you, we were shocked to silence instantly. We didn't know what to do. And then it became a, hey, hey, Mike, did you go see what that was? Look out the window. And I could swear that we heard something moving in the grass underneath our window, you know? And I'm just like, go see what that was. And he's like, I'm not getting up to see what that was. You you go see what it was. I'm like, no, not me. No, nobody. So the next day, you know, even at an age like that, I knew what Bigfoot was. You know, I, I again, we, we talked in the early days of the podcast, man. I mean, this goes back to when I can learn how to read the fascination with this stuff. So we go, we go on a Bigfoot hunt the next day, me and me and young Mike. So you're 10 and six, maybe, but we're going to go find this creature. So we go down by the pond that was behind our house on my great-grandfather's property. And luckily, we were the only kids in the family he trusted to go down on his property. You know, he, uh, was, he, he'd always told my mom we were good kids and he didn't mind because we didn't tear things up. So we go down there. We're looking for tracks in the mud, you know, because that's what you do. You look in the mud. That's, that's the pictures in the books. You, you make the plaster cast and all that. Now, I will say we, we found 
cat-like prints probably eight inches across, give or take. I'm going to assume we saw mountain lion prints. And, of course, they were probably exaggerated, us, us being little kids. But we really thought we'd heard Bigfoot that night. And then there's still potential that we heard a, a mountain lion, which for this area is supposedly rare. So even if that's what we heard, it was still kind of a kind of a rare sound to be exposed to. Years and years later, young I'm a, I'm a young man at this point. I'm working in Dixon, Paramount Headwear. Well, I don't believe that's there any longer. A friend of mine calls me, and he says, Hey, I need you to come out here. Meet me at my house. We're going to go look at something. I'm okay. So I go over to his house, and he goes, my mother-in-law saw Bigfoot last night. Really? So he, he tells me whereabouts it is. And I'm very familiar with the area. One of my girlfriends had lived there. I'd been down that road a million times. I'm like, well, we got to go look for this. So we we get... she His brother-in-law, who was a little bit younger, was with her at the time. And he verifies her story. This big hulking thing moved across the road in front of us as we were driving down the road that night. You know, we, had to, we turned the corner and had to stop because it's right there in the middle of the road. And it steps across the road. It steps over the fence and it walks off into the field on the other side. And us being the good law-abiding citizens that we were, we went down there that very next day, <laughs> found a place to park, and we looked all over for big footprints on the road and the side of the road. We didn't see any. Now, if it had gone across the road and stepped over the fence, none of us could step over it. Not without someone to hold it down or something. It was a pretty good height. But we weren't going to let that deter us, nor were we going to let a fence line deter us, which, you know, in Missouri... That, that's somebody's property, so I'm not. That's why I'm not giving specific examples of where we were. I'll just tell you I know where it was. But we grabbed a bunch of flashlights and we set off across that field. I mean, it was getting dark, and we we were gonna find Bigfoot. And we went up on the hillside. We kind of sat where we could see this little valley that we were kind of over, and we sat there until way into dark. I mean, but we we were eagle-eyed observers for at least a little while, watching to see if we saw any evidence of any creature coming out of the woods or anything like that and to be honest we never did but you know it was fun to be have a bunch of us up there watching now for this area finally i'm gonna wrap up this little bigfoot spat with a, a tale from a friend of mine his name was zach and he told me a tale i believe it was his uncle back in probably the 70s i would say had what we would call one of he called it a little silver bullet trailer one of those little camper trailers you could haul behind a pickup or whatever a little silver Kind of bullet shaped, like an airstream. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he lived in one of these. He kind of lived back in a, on a lot, a wooded lot. And he had a, a big dog that was supposedly half wolf. You know, it's everybody knows somebody who knows somebody who's got a wolf dog. And they're just a great big mean dog. Is about all they are. Nothing, you know, no nothing out of the ordinary. But he's got this dog, and he's sitting there one night with his TV dinner, watching his little rabbit ears TV. And that dog just kind of starts to whimper a little bit, and hunkers down as low as it can get. And just kind of watching the door. And he's like, what are you doing? You know, he's looking at this dog. This dog's never been afraid of anything. You know, this this dog fight a mountain lion, fight a bear, whatever. You know, it's never been afraid of anything he's ever seen. And this dog starts to whimper a little bit more. And he's hunkering down. And he's like trying to get up underneath the couch, you know, chair or whatever. You know, I'm sure they didn't have enough room for a couch. And this dog's just whimpering and staring at the door. And the guy's like, what is going on? And then he starts to hear some movement out around the trailer. So he thinks somebody's trespassing. You know, he's like, so he goes over and he cracks the door and he's like, go get him, boy. Well, that dog don't move an inch. He looks at the door and he kind of whimpers and he tries. This dog is trying to collapse in on itself like a dying star. It, it wants nothing to do with what's going on outside. So he closes the door and he reaches over. He tries to drag the dog out and it's fighting every inch of the way. And he's just like, what is it, boy? So he goes to look out the window to see what's going on. And about that time, a hand, a dark, gnarled, wrinkly hand, big enough to cover the whole window, just slaps over that window. And shakes that whole trailer to the point where this this fella grabs the rifle, you know, and kind of sits down in the chair and gets himself just as far away from any window and door as he can. <laughs> and he says this kind of goes on for a while, you know, and he doesn't really, he didn't remember how long, but, you know, something would periodically come up and nudge the trailer, be tromping around outside before it finally decided it was done messing with him and disappear into the wild. So whether or not we have... A Bigfoot in Missouri, which I know we, we've dubbed Momo over the years. Right. There are definitely people who have who've had experiences. And again, maybe maybe I heard a mountain lion, maybe I heard a Sasquatch. but That's some pretty scary stuff, especially if you're the guy in the trailer. Yeah. Huge yeah. hand. That's not a mountain lion. <laughs> no, that is not a mountain lion. And again, that's I, I always was fascinated with that story. I never got an opportunity to meet the guy who told it, though. It was, like I said, that's a secondhand story I got from a friend of mine. Huh? 
Very good, very good. I'm going to dive back into kind of more of a classic tale. Everybody has no, undoubtedly heard of the Headless Horseman. The legend is born on the war fields of the American Revolutionary War, in particular what was called the Battle of White Plains. The smell of gunpowder rose on the air as the smoke and fog blurred the sight of vision. In the distance, gunshots echoed across the dark countryside without the cover of moonlight. Colonists were facing off with British forces on what was called Merritt Hill. As rifles were fired and zing of propelled bullets streaked through the dark woods, the British were sneakily trying to make their way up Hatfield Hill to launch a surprise attack. Discovering the British plans, a young lieutenant called out the order, Ready the cannons! On his cue, the fuses were lit in the darkness, sparking to life and raining forth a barrage of cannonballs directly at the advancing 20 troops on horseback. 19 of the 20 quickly retreated to flee from the bellowing cannonballs. The last, however, was unfortunate and did not make the retreat. He was a Hessian artilleryman, a burly, broad-shouldered German mercenary hired by the British forces for, shall we say, his special skills of war. When the dust had settled, at first dawn, the colonists surveyed the battlefield and what had occurred the night before. They found a quite gruesome sight. The Hessian mercenary was found in a pool of blood and gore, finding the man entirely without his head. In its place was nothing more than gray brain matter. Apparently, one of the cannonballs was a direct hit, removing the mercenary's head, as well as taking out his horse. Both the limp bodies lied on the ground, cold and frigid. A small celebration was held for the victory, and the body of the Hessian, as well as his horse, are said to be buried in a shallow, unmarked grave near a small church. The news and gory stories spread far and wide, ignited by drunken tavern lore. Stories begin to spread. If you dare to visit the church graveyard at night, one could feel the earth literally move below you as you walked, as if something was clawing and trying to escape from beneath the ground. Several days passed after the skirmish, and it happened to be on All Hallows' Eve that the story seemed to regain a foothold among the locals. For it was on this special night, once again, without the light of the moon, that an eerie light was spotted near the Dutch church cemetery, one resembling that of a lantern, and as the eerie call was heard from the gnarled tree branches, one would only dare to investigate. In the nights that followed, one particular Dutchman was returning home from the tavern, making a shortcut through the church cemetery. It's a tale we've heard before. It was here that the church bell tolled at the stroke of midnight, which startled him and stopped him dead in his tracks. After what seemed a short time, he found his feet difficult to move or to lift. He peered down into the darkness at his feet, and he swore that he saw a gray, grimly morbid hand from beneath the cold soil holding his ankle. Frightened, he screamed and attempted to jump falling flat on the ground and frantically crawling to hide behind a nearby tree. From this vantage point, he saw the shallowed grave begin to give way, to collapse, as the headless horseman pulled himself up from the earth, still astride a horse that promptly also emerged. As the lantern's light illuminated the headless horseman that he carried, it ran across the cemetery, jumped the old rock wall, and took off heading in the direction of Merritt Hill, with the lantern outstretched, illuminating his dark path ahead of him. The Dutchman rose to his feet and ran as fast as he could to alert the town, to which several had already spotted this spectacle. The townspeople speculated he was looking for his lost head. Others thought perhaps he was seeking the troops to rejoin the fight, unaware that they had retreated and lost. Still others warned, no, He's seeking revenge to find himself ahead from the first victim that happened to come across his path. Still to this day, the legend of the Headless Horseman haunts us, intrigues us. Passed down through history, slightly variations, goes back to Washington Irvin's The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, probably the most famous rendition of the legend, and is oftentimes mistaken as the source of the character. However, its actual origin is unclear, although similar German folk tales, such as the Wild Huntsman, has been passed around for several decades 
before Irving himself penned this in his own version. In some more contemporary versions, the classic Halloween symbol of the jack-o'-lantern has been added. Once depicted as carrying a jack-o'-lantern, some, or the Headless Horseman, wears one in place of his severed head. Still and a little less known is that by throwing a jack-o'-lantern in his path, it will scare him away and perhaps save your own life. Regardless, if you're near Merritt Hill and find yourself taking a shortcut through the old Dutch cemetery, especially on All Hallows' Eve, you too might witness the rising of the Headless Horseman, where he will only appear long enough to claim an unsuspecting victim by taking their head before returning to his grave for yet another year of dark slumber. Believe in Washington Irving's tale was a Brom Bones, I believe. Sounds right. Is a uh, masquerading to run off Ichabod Crane. Ichabod Crane. Which you know, if you're our age, I'm sure you've seen the Disney-fied version. Disney fight, and of course you've got the uh, the Johnny Depp version, yes. Sleepy Hollow. Well, we go from one hollow to another. If you're from this part of Missouri, you've undoubtedly heard of a place called Crybaby Hollow. Indeed I have. I uh, have some friends that grew up in the area where it's supposed to be. I'm not going to get into detail here. Honestly, if you're that interested in finding it, you can get on, you can get on the Google, and it'll tell you where to go. Uh, I've been warned away from it, I'll tell you, over the years, and not because of anything, not because of any malicious ghosts, I'll tell you that. <laughs> now, the story of Crybaby Hollow is that once upon a time, back back in the days where we used carriages to get us from place to place, that a, a young mother and her child had stopped for one reason or another in this particular area, this little hollow, and that the, while they were occupied, the, the small baby crawled off into the woods and that they, they couldn't find the baby, you know? They, they would hear the baby crying, and they couldn't find it. And the mother, distraught, and, and her missing child, she ran off into the woods to find their baby. And whether it be the coachman, the husband, whoever, they, they were unable to, to track down the mother and the baby before they had succumbed to the elements. And that they found them laying on a rock outcropping. Uh, both of them had died, and, you know, tragically. And Missouri weather can be fairly unforgiving. Uh, I, I believe one version is that they were hung up in the winter snow. You know, and, and I remember as a child, many a snowfall where the, the snowdrifts were deep enough that you could lose a child in them. So, you know, I could understand if this had been winter, how that could happen. Now, over the years, this, this area is supposedly haunted. And you will hear the crying of a child or the wailing of a, of a mother searching for her lost child. If you're in that area at the right time of night... And that you might even see the, the specter of the mother looking for her baby. Now, a friend of mine used to live in that area. Uh, it was close enough for him to be able to literally walk to that uh, supposed rock outcropping where the bodies were found. And, and he was, uh, he liked to walk in the woods at night. Just He was a wanderer. And it was something that him and I did on many occasions where we would go out and walk around in the woods and search and, and explore and I'd like to say that kind of stemmed from our shared love of adventure stories and, and Dungeons and Dragons. You know, we would go out there. And, and honestly, if you take a nice long walk in the woods, it'll give you sort of a visual of a lot of D&D games. But he told a story of, of a time when he was out there on his own and, and he was kind of walking through the woods. And he stumbled upon the rock outcropping by accident. And while he stood there, he said it appeared as if the rock itself was maybe weeping blood in the moonlight. And that he could hear the wailing of a mother searching for her child. And then in the distance, the crying of a, of a lonesome missing babe. Now later on, my brother and sister and I decided that we would find out where this place was uh, a little more specifically. As far as, you know, driving there. I didn't want to trespass on, on the property. It, didn't, it no longer belonged to my friend's family at that point. So we drove down there. And we had been warned by another friend, hey, you don't want to go down that way. Because if there's anything Missouri's known for... Unfortunately, we are a, a hotbed for, for methamphetamines. And uh, I was told that the, the, the houses on that road had secrets and that if you were there too long and you didn't belong, they would make sure that you knew you weren't wanted. There were things that you didn't want to see there. And I could say that when we found, according to what we found on the internet, when we arrived at the, the location we were supposed to be at, the houses didn't, I mean, they, they, we, we weren't in a good neighborhood, I'll say that. And we do feel like we were, we felt like we were being watched. Maybe not so much listening, you know. I don't think there was a, a, a specter watching us to, by any means. But we definitely felt uncomfortable in that area, to say the least. But we, we did. 
sit there on the side of the road for quite a while with the windows down, hoping to hear something. Not that we we did, but again, I've had several of my friends tell me that they've been in the area and they've heard the crying of the baby out in that hollow. So, uh, my own experience notwithstanding, apparently there is there's something there to be heard if you're there at the right time, the right place. But again, I I don't think I'd want to venture out there because people that that don't believe in ghosts, uh, they believe in something else in those parts. Right. Good one. Good one. And yeah, I've heard of that crybaby hollow from maybe mutual friends uh, that that we know, and I've been told kind of the same thing that if if one fear of, of of demise doesn't get you, quite possibly the other will. Yeah, you don't have to be scared of ghosts when you're there. That's for sure. I've got a third story, and I want to pre-warn. This is by far one of the more gruesome, uh, so it is not for the faint of heart. Uh, kind of consider yourself warned. But it is the story of what is known as the Hook Man. On one particular fall evening, much like tonight, there was a cool nip in the air. Teenage lovers Adam Wright and Lucy Bell had planned a romantic getaway just outside of town at a point known only as Lover's Lane that overlooked the nearby lake on a cliffside. The couple's parents were both out of town, one attending a business trip, and the other attending a Halloween costume party. The town was small with a population of only a few hundred, much like many small towns speckled across the nation. The couple had packed a nice picnic lunch that day and had enjoyed the meal on a blanket overlooking the lake some 50 foot below. Adam attempted to build a small bonfire as nightfall approached, and the affectionate Lucy stared dreamily into her handsome boyfriend's eyes. Unfortunately, the bonfire was short-lived, as a sudden rainstorm pelted down on the young lovers, making them retreat to the car for shelter. But the couple made the most of it, removing their wet clothes and finding a clean blanket in the back seat for just such an occasion. Adam adjusted the 66 Mustang's radio to a romantic channel to just set the mode, and the couple began to kiss and make out. After a short period of time, the radio station picked up an emergency message from local law enforcement. We have news stating that a deranged inmate has escaped from the state mental institute. Citizens should be on alert, as the man is known a known killer and is considered armed and very dangerous. Although his name is Hector Gonzalez, many simply call him the Hook Man. He lost his right hand many years ago, and in its place he wears a leather-strapped steel hook. Residents of the direct area are being advised to stay inside, as trick-or-treat has been canceled this evening. If you see this man, fitting this description, you are being asked to not confront him, but immediately call the police. Young Lucy became immediately frightened and suggested to Adam maybe they should call it a night and return home. Adam pleaded with Lucy. There was nothing to worry about. And besides, they would be safer together than going home each to an empty house. The couple finally shunned it off and began what they started. Within a short time, they were both startled yet again by hearing something outside the car. Lucy stared once again at Adam, whispering, Did you hear that? Something's just outside the car, scratching. Adam attempted to look. However, the windows were so steamed up that he was unable to see outside into the darkness, only illuminated by the occasional flash of lightning. Oh, it was just some tree branches blowing in the wind. Now give me another kiss. Lucy pushed him away. I'm serious. I'm scared. Please take me home now. Adam became aggravated, sat up, adjusted his seat, and reached into the back seat for his shirt. He then hurriedly attempted to start the car. However, it appeared the battery had become weak and was not strong enough to turn the motor over. Lucy began to sob. Adam, take me home, please. He struggled awkwardly with the ignition, and in doing so, accidentally knocked the Mustang out of gear, and it began to slowly roll. Lucy screamed, Oh no! Oh no! as the car began to roll downhill towards the 50-foot bluff into the lake. Adam struggled, but was unable to regain control of the car. He yelled back, Jump, Lucy! Get out now! As both teens jumped out of opposite sides of the car, they rolled to the ground, covered with mud that the sudden storm had caused. Adam regained his foothold and ran along the side of the car, trying to steer it. Lucy looked on in horror and fear, screaming. Finally, it seemed good fate seemed to strike as the car ran up on a large rock, stopping abruptly, just ten feet before what would have become a fifty-foot drop. Adam chuckled and called up to Lucy. Lucy, would you look at that? We're okay. 
We're going to be just fine. Suddenly a flash of lightning as Adam looked up the hill to see his beautiful Lucy sighing and breathing relief. But then a silhouette of a man with a hooked hand jumped up from behind her, jerking her backwards as his hook violently attacked Lucy's body. She let out a blood-curdling scream. Adam ran, scrambling, trying to save her, frantically trying to climb the muddy and slick incline towards his Lucy, only to arrive to find her bloody dead corpse breathing her last breath. He screamed and terrified, peered all around him into the darkness, grabbing the first thing he could, a small branch to defend himself that he now clutched in his hand. 24 hours passed. When both Adam and Lucy's parents returned home to find their houses empty, it was no secret their kids were a romantic couple and possibly the pride of the small town. Because Adam Wright had just won a full scholarship for leading his football team to victory the past two years in a row. And Lucy Bell, well, she had been crowned homecoming queen. The concerned parents went to the police together and soon an immediate investigation took place, especially with the news of an escaped skiller still at large. Yet another 24 hours passed with no new leads. When finally the police decided to check the area's most famous, or shall we say infamous, makeout area known as Lover's Lane. With the storms passing as quickly as they had arrived a few days ago, the police quickly spotted some suspicious tire tracks that seemed to drive right off the 50-foot bluff. They feared the worst, so they called in a recovery team to search the waters below. Sure enough, they found the 66 Mustang driven by Adam Wright, a gift from his father for graduation. The car was being pulled out from the depths when the parents happened to overhear the CB radio call asking for assistance at Lover's Leap. The family quickly jumped into their cars and raced to the scene. It was a dismal discovery. As the parents arrived to see the water-soaked Mustang being drugged back up, both doors shut and the windows rolled up. The police attempted to intersect the families until they could further investigate the contents of the car, but they were unsuccessful. The parents began to wail and cry out loud as they found both of their children buckled into their seat belts, cold and dead in the front seat. Even more alarming was the hook marks that clawed and mutilated both of their bodies. So horrific the sight just got worse as they noticed both of their faces had been nearly entirely removed. The police could not explain why the victims, while obviously brutally slain by the hookman killer, were found inside an enclosed car with seat belts on. In the coming days, both the town's teenage pride couple were laid to rest in a nearby family grave plots that just so happened to lie side by side. Flags were flown at half-mast for the following weeks in the small town, as they dealt with the tragic loss, but as the unsuccessful manhunt continued. The hooked man was never apprehended. It's believed he simply moved to the next town, and then the next, and then the next. However, one year and one day from their death, on Halloween night, both the families were once again tormented and frightened. The jack-o'-lanterns they had put out on their porches were found to have the dried and preserved face skins gently added to the Halloween decor. Even to this day, the families of Adam Wright and Lucy Bell still do not celebrate Halloween, and still people who visit Lover's Leap often hear the blood-curdling screams of Lucy and Adam. Perhaps a warning, a cautionary plea, perhaps it is time to get home. It's a different version than the one I had heard before. So I have kind of a lengthy story here. This is one of my favorite folk tales. It's a Russian folk tale. It's called The Soldier and Death. This is one of my favorite stories, and you may have had some exposure to this. There are different versions of it over the years. And I believe even Jim Henson's company did an adaptation of it. It's one of my one of my favorite pieces of media, and so I love this story. And uh, I'm going to read it here. So if you've heard it before, you can feel free to skip to the end. And if you haven't heard it, then you know I hope you enjoy this. A soldier had served God and the great Tsar for 25 years. And in that time, he earned himself three dry biscuits, and he set off to walk his way home. He embraced his companions with whom he had served for so long and boasted of the feasting there would be in the village when he should come marching home again with all of his wars behind him. And so singing at the top of his voice, he set off. But as soon as he was alone on the high road walking through the forest, he began to think about his past. And he thought to himself, All these years I have served the Tsar and had good clothes to my back and a belly full of food, and now I am likely to be both hungry and cold. 
Already I've nothing but these three dry biscuits. Just then he met an old beggar, who stood in the road and crossed himself and asked for alms and the love of God. The soldier had not a copper piece in the world, so he reaches into his pack and he gives the beggar one of his three dry biscuits. He had not gone very far along the road when he met a second beggar, who was leaning on a stick, recited holy words, and begged for alms in the name of God. The soldier gave him the second of his three dry biscuits. Then, at the bend in the road, he met a third beggar, with long white hair and beard and filthy rags, who stood shaking by the roadside, and he begged alms for the love of God. Well, if I give him my last dry biscuit, I shall have nothing for myself, thought the old soldier. So he gave the beggar half of his third dry biscuit. Then the thought came into his head that perhaps the old beggar would meet the other two, and would learn that he had been given less than they have, and that he would be hurt and affronted by this, this failure of charity. So then his blessings will be of no avail. So he gave the old beggar the other half of his third of the dry biscuits, and thought to himself, well, I shall get along somehow. And he began to make his way forward, but the old beggar put out a hand to stop him. Brother, says the beggar, are you in want of anything? Well, God bless you, says the soldier, looking at the beggar's rags. I want nothing from you. You're a poor man yourself. Well, never mind my poverty, says the old beggar. Just tell me. Tell me what you would like to have, and I am well able to reward you for your kind heart. Well, I don't want anything, said the soldier, but if you do happen to have such a thing as maybe a pack of cards about you, I'd, I'd keep them in memory of you, and they'd be a pleasure to me on my long road. Well, the old beggar thrust his hands into his rags, and he pulls forth a pack of cards. Take these, says the beggar, and when you play with them, you'll always be a winner, whoever may be playing against you. And here's a sack for you as well. If you meet anything and want to catch it, just open the sack and tell the beasts or birds, or whatever else, to get into it, and they'll do just that. And you can close the sack and do with them what you will. Well, thank you kindly, says the soldier, and he puts the pack of cards in his pocket and trudges off along the high road singing an old song. He went on and on till he came to a lake where he drank a little water to ease his thirst, smoked his pipe to put out as much of his hunger as he could, and rested by the shore of the lake. And there on the lake he saw three wild geese swimming far, far in the distance. Now only if I could catch them, said the soldier. And then he remembers the sack the old beggar gave him. So he opens the sack and he shouts at the top of voice, Hi, you there, wild geese! Come into my sack! And the three wild geese splash up out of the water, flew up on the bank, and crowded into the sack, one after another. The old soldier ties up the mouth of the sack, flings it over his shoulder, and he continues on his way. Well, he comes to a town, and looking for a tavern, he chose the best that he could see. He goes in, and he asks to see the landlord. See here, he says. I have three wild geese. I want one of them roasted for my dinner. Another I'll give you in exchange for a bottle of vodka, and the third you shall have as payment for your trouble. The landlord agrees, and as well as he might, and presently the soldier is seated at a good table near the window with a whole bottle of his best vodka and a fine roast goose fresh from the kitchen. When he had made an end of the goose, the soldier laid down his knife and fork, tipped the last drops of vodka down his throat, sets the bottle upside down upon the table, he lights his pipe, sits back on the bench, and he looks out the window to see what was going on in this little town. And there on the other side of the road was a fine palace, well carved and painted. A year's work had gone into the carving of every doorpost and window frame, but in all the palace there was not one pane of glass that remained whole. Landlord, says the soldier, tell me what's the meaning of this. Why is such a fine palace like that standing empty with broken windows? Ah, it's a good enough palace, says the landlord. The Tsar built it for himself, but there's no one living in it now but the devils. Devils, says the old soldier. Aye, devils, says the landlord. Every night they crowd into the palace, and what with their shouting and yelling and screaming and the playing of cards and all other devilries that come into their heads, there's no living in that palace for decent folk. Nobody comes to clear them out, asks the old soldier. Ah, that's easier said than done, says the landlord. Well, with that, the soldier wishes good health to the landlord and sets off to see the Tsar. He comes walking into the Tsar's house and gives him a salute. Your Majesty, he says, will you give me leave to spend one night in your empty palace? Well, God bless you, says the Tsar, but you don't know what you're asking. Foolhardy folk have tried to spend the night in that place. They went in merry and boasting, but not one of them came out walking alive in the morning. Well, what of that, says the soldier. Water won't drown a Russian soldier and fire won't burn him. I served God and Tsar for 25 years and I am not dead. A single night in that palace will not be the end of me. The Tsar looks at him. But I tell you, a man walks in there alive in the evening and in the morning the servants have to search the floor for the bits of bones that remain. Nonetheless, says the soldier, if your majesty will give me leave... Well, get along with you then, and God bless you, says the Tsar. Spend the night there if you have your heart set on it. So the soldier came to the palace, and he stepped in, singing through the empty rooms. He made himself comfortable in the biggest room of all, laid his sack in a corner, and hung his sword on a nail, sat down at the table, and took out his bag of tobacco and filled his pipe, and he sat there smoking, ready for whatever the, the night might bring. Midnight sharp. There was a yelling, a shouting, a blowing of horns, a scraping of fiddles, and every other kind of instrument. A noise of dancing, a noise of running, of stamping. 
and the palace was crammed full of devils making themselves at home as if the palace belonged to them. And you, soldier, cried the devils. What are you sitting there so glum for, smoking your pipe? There's smoke enough where we have been. Put your pipe in your pocket and play a round of cards with us. Right you are, said the soldiers, if you'll play with my cards. We'll deal them out, shouts the devils, and so the soldier puts his pipe in his pocket, and he deals out the cards while the devils crowd round the table, fighting for room on the benches. They played a game, and the soldier won. And they played another, and he wins again. The devils were cunning, though, God knows, and not all of their cunning could win a single game for them. The soldier was raking in all the money, all the time. Soon enough, the devils had not a penny amongst them, and the soldier was for putting up his cards and lighting his pipe. Content he was, as well he might be, with his pockets bulging with the devil's money. Stop a minute, soldier, says the devils. We've still got sixty bushels of silver and forty of gold. We'll play for them if you'll give us time to send for them. Well, let's see that silver, says the soldier. Well, they sent a little devil to fetch the silver. Sixty times he ran out of the room, and sixty times he came staggering back with a bushel on his shoulders. The soldier pulled out his cards, and they played on. But it was all the same. The devils cheated in every kind of way, but could not win the game. Go and fetch the gold, says the oldest devil. Aye, aye, grandfather, says the little devil, and goes scuttling out of the room. Forty times he ran out, and forty times he came staggering back with a bushel of gold between his shoulders. They played on, and the soldier won every game and all the gold. He asked if they had any more money to lose, as he put his cards in his pocket and lit his pipe. The devils looked at all the money they had lost. Seemed a pity to lose all that good silver and gold. Well, tear him to pieces, brothers, they cried. Tear him to pieces, eat him, and have done with him. The soldier tapped his little pipe on the table, and he goes, First make sure, he says, who eats whom. And with that, he whips out his sack, and he says to all the devils who were all gnashing their teeth and make ready to attack him, what do you call this? Well, it's a sack, says the devil. It is, said the soldier. Well, then if it's a sack, by the word of God, get in it. And in the next minute, all those devils were tumbling over each other and getting into the sack, squeezing in one on top of another until the last one had got inside. And then the soldier ties up the sack with a good double knot, and he hung it on a nail, and he lays down to go to sleep. In the morning, the czar sent his servants. Go, says the czar, and see what has happened to the soldier who spent the night in this palace. If the unclean spirits have made an end of him, then you must sweep up his bones and make it all clean again. In the servants come, all ready to lament for the brave soldier done to death by the unclean. And there was the soldier walking cheerfully from one room to another, smoking his little pipe. Well done, soldier. We never thought to see you alive. And how did you spend the night? How did you manage against the devils? Devils, says the soldier. I wish all men I have played cards against had paid their debts so honestly. Have a look at the silver and gold I won from them. Look at the heaps of money on the floor. The servants looked at the silver and gold and touched it to make sure it was real. There was no doubt about it. Uh, I wish I had more in my pocket of the same. Now, brother, said the soldier, off with you as quick as you can. Go and fetch two blacksmiths here on the run, and let them bring with them an iron anvil and the two heaviest hammers in the forge. The servants asked no questions, but hurried to the smithy, and the two blacksmiths came running with anvil and hammers. Giants they were, the strongest men in all the town. Now, says the soldier, take that sack from the nail, lay it on that anvil, and let me see how the blacksmiths from this town set about their work. Confused, they took the sack from the nail. Devil, take it, what a weight, they said to each other. And little voices screamed out of the sack, We're good folk, we're your own people! Are you, said the blacksmiths, and they laid the sack down on the anvil and swung the great hammers up and down, up and down, as if they were beating out a lump of iron. The devils felt badly in there and worse and worse. They cursed to high heavens and low hell. The hammers came down as if they were going through the devil's anvil earth and all. It was more than the devils could bear. Have mercy, they screamed. Have mercy, soldier. Let us out again into the world and we'll never forget you. And as for this palace, no devil shall put the nail of his toe of his foot upon it. We'll tell them all. None shall come here. None shall come within a hundred miles. The soldier let the blacksmith give a few more blows just for luck. Then he stopped them. He untied the knot. And the moment he opened it, the devil shot out and fled away straight to hell without looking right or left in their hurry. The soldier was no fool, though, and he grabbed one old devil by the leg. And the devil hung gibbering, trying to get away. The soldier cut the devil's hairy wrist to the bone so that the blood flowed. He took a pin, dipped it in blood, and gave it to the devil. But he never let go of the devil's leg. Right, he said. Right that you will be my faithful servant. The old devil screamed and wiggled, but the soldier gripped him tight. There was nothing to be done. He wrote and signed in his own blood a promise to serve the soldier faithfully wherever and whenever he should be needed. Then the soldier let him go, and he went hopping and screaming after the others and had disappeared into the night. And so the devils went rushing down to hell, aching in every bone of their hairy bodies, and they called all the other unclean spirits, old and young, big and little, and told what had happened to them. And they set sentinels all around hell and guards at every gate and ordered them to watch well, and whatever they did, not on any account, to let in a soldier with a sack. The soldier went to the Tsar and told him how he had dealt with the devils, and how henceforth no devil would set foot within a hundred miles of the palace. Well, if that's so, says the Tsar, we'll move in at once and go and live there, and you shall live with me and be honored as my brother. 
And with that, there was a great to-do, shifting the bedding and tables and benches and all else from the old palace to the new. And the soldier set up house with the Tsar, living with him as a brother, and wearing fine clothes with gold embroidery and eating the same food as the Tsar, and as much of it as he liked. Money to spend he had, for he had won it from the devils, enough to last even a spending man a thousand years. And he had nothing to spend it on. Hens don't eat gold, nor do mice. And there the money lay in a corner till the soldier was tired of looking at it. So the soldier thought to marry, and he took a wife, and in a year's time God gave him a son. And he had nothing more to wish for except to see his son grow up and turn into a general. But it so happened that the little boy fell ill, and what was the matter with him no one knew. He grew worse and worse from day to day, and the Tsar sent for every doctor in the country, but none of them did a halfpenny worth of good. The doctors grew richer, and the boy grew no better, but worse, as is often the way. The soldier had almost given up hope of saving his son when he remembered the old devil who had signed a promise written in his own blood to serve the soldier faithfully, wherever and whenever there should be the need. He remembered this, and he said to himself, well, where the devil has my old devil hidden himself all this time? And he had scarcely said this when suddenly there was a little old devil standing in front of him, dressed like a peasant in a little shirt and pants, trembling with fright and asking, how can I serve your excellency? Well, see here, says the soldier, my son is ill. Do you happen to know how to cure him? Well, the little old devil took a glass from his pocket and filled it with cold water and set it on the sick child's forehead. Come here, your excellency, he says, and look into this glass. The soldier came and he looked to the glass. What does your excellency see? Asked the little old devil, who was so much afraid of the soldier that he trembled and could hardly speak. Well, I see death, like a little old woman standing at my son's feet. Be easy, says the little old devil, for if death is standing at your son's feet, he will be well again. But if death were standing in his head, then nothing could save him. And with that, the little old devil lifted the glass and splashed the cold water over the sick child. And the very next minute, there was the little boy crawling about and laughing and crowing as if he had never been sick a day in his life. Give me that glass, says the soldier, and we'll call it quits. Well, the little old devil gave him the glass, and the soldier gave back the promise with the devil that he had signed in his own blood. And as soon as the little old devil had that promise in his hand, he gave one look at the soldier and fled away as if the blacksmith had only that minute stopped beating on him. And the soldier after that was set up as a wise man and put all the doctors out of business, curing the boyars and the generals. He would just look in his glass, and if death stood at the sick man's feet, he threw the water over him and cured him. If death stood at the sick man's head, he said, well, it's all up to you. And the sick man died as sure as fate. All went well until the Tsar himself fell ill and sent for the soldier. The soldier went in, and the Tsar greeted him as if he was his own brother and prayed him to be quick. He felt the great sickness growing upon him as he lay there. The soldier poured cold water in the glass, he set it on the Tsar's forehead, and he looked again, and he saw death standing at the Tsar's head. Tsar, says the soldier, it's all up to you. Death is waiting by your head, and you have but a few minutes left to live. What? cries the Tsar. You cure my boyars and my generals, and you will not cure me who am the Tsar? You who I have treated as my own brother? If I only have a few minutes left to live, then it's time enough to give the orders to behead you. The soldier thought and thought, and he begged death. Oh, death, he says, give my life to the Tsar and kill me instead. Better to die so than to end by being shamefully beheaded. He looked once more in the glass and saw that the little old woman death had shifted from the Tsar's head and was now standing at his feet. He picked up the glass and splashed the water over the Tsar, and there was the Tsar, as well and healthy as he ever had been. You are my own true brother after all, says the Tsar. Let us go and feast together. But the soldier shook in all of his limbs and could hardly stand, and he knew that his time was come. He prayed. He prayed death. Oh, death, give me just one hour to say goodbye to my wife and my little son. Hurry up, says death. And the soldier hurried to his room in the palace, said goodbye to his wife, told his son to grow up and be a general, lay down on his bed, and grew ever ill by each minute. He looked, and there was Death, a little old woman, standing by his bedside. Well, soldier, says Death, you have only two minutes left to live. The soldier groaned, and turning in bed, pulled the sack out from under the pillow and opened it. Do you know what this is, he says to Death. A sack, says Death. Well, if it is a sack, then get in it, says the soldier. And Death was in the sack in a moment. And the soldier leapt from his bed, well and strong, tied up the sack with two double knots, flung it out over his shoulder, and set out for the deep forest, which is the thickest in all the world. He came to a deep place in the forest, and he made his way into the middle of it, hung the sack from the topmost branches of a high poplar tree, left it there, and came home singing songs at the top of his voice, full of all kinds of merriment. And from that day on, there was no dying in the world. There were bursts every day, plenty of them, but no one died. It was a poor time for doctors. And so it was for many years. Death had come to an end, and it was as if all men would live forever. And all the time, the old woman, Death, tied up in a sack, unable to get to her business, was hanging from the top of a tall poplar tree far away in the forest. And then one day, the soldier was walking out to take the air, and he met an ancient old crone, so old and so ancient, that she was like to fall whichever way the wind blew. She tottered along, blown this way and that, like a blade of withered grass. What an old hag, said the soldier to himself. 
It was time for her to die many years ago. Yes, says the old crone with her toothless gums numbling and grumbling over her words. Long ago it was time for me to die. When you shut up death in the sack, I only had an hour left. I had long done with this world, and the world had long done with me, and I would have been glad to die at peace. Long ago my place in heaven was ready made, and it is empty to this day, for I cannot die. You, soldier, have sinned before God and before man. You have sinned a sin that God will not forgive. I am not the only soul in this world who is tortured as I am. Mine is not the only place that is growing dusty in heaven. Hundreds and thousands of us who should have died drag on in misery about this world. And but for you, we should be now resting in our peace. The soldier began to think, and he thought of all the other old men and women he had kept from the rest that God had made ready for them. There's no doubt about it, he thinks. I'd better let death loose again, no matter if I'm the first of whom she makes an end of. I've sinned many sins, not counting this one. I'd better go to the other world now and bear my punishment while I'm strong, for when I'm very old it will come worse for me to be tortured. So he sets off to the forest, where it's thickest in all the world. He found the poplar tree, and he saw the sack hanging from the topmost branch, swinging this way, and that is the wind blew. Well, Death, are you alive up there? The soldier shouted against the wind, and a little voice, hardly to be heard, answered from the sack. So the soldier climbs up the tree, and he takes down the sack, and carries it home over his shoulder. He says goodbye to his wife and his son, who was now a fine young lad. And then he went into his own room, he opened the bag, laid down upon the bed, and begged Death to make an end of him. And Death, in the form of a little old woman, crept trembling out of the sack, looking this way and that, for she was very much afraid. As soon as she saw the soldier, she bolted through the door and ran away as fast as her little old legs could carry her. The devils can make an end of you if they like, she shrieked, but you don't catch me taking a hand in it. The soldier sat up in the bed and knew that he was alive and well. Troubled he was as to what to do next, and he thinks, Well, I'd better get straight along to hell, and let the devils throw me into the boiling pitch, and stew me until all my sins have stewed out of me. And with that, he says goodbye to everybody, he took his sack in his hands, and he set off to hell by the best road that he could find. And he walked on and on over hill and on through valley, through deep forest, until he came at last to the kingdom of the unclean. There were the walls of hell and the very gates of hell. And as he looked, he saw that sentinels were standing at every gate. As soon as he came near a gate, the devil doing sentry duty calls out, Who goes there? A sinful soul. Come to you to be stewed in the boiling pitch. And what is that you have in your hand? Well, it's a sack. And the devil yelled at the top of his voice and gave alarm. And from all sides, the unclean rushed up and began closing every gate and window into hell with strong bolts and bars. And the soldier walked around outside the walls of hell, unable to get in. He cried out to the prince of hell, Let me into hell, I beg you. I have come to you to be tormented because I have sinned before God and man. No, shouted the prince of hell, you will not come in. Go away, go away, I tell you. Go away any place you like. Take your sack with you. There's no place for you here. The soldier was more troubled than ever. Well, says he, if you won't let me in, you won't. I'll go away if you give me two hundred sinful souls, and I will take them to God. And perhaps when he sees them, he will forgive me and let me into heaven. I'll throw in another fifty, says the prince of hell, if you'll only get away from here. And he told the lesser devils to count out two hundred and fifty sinful souls and to let them quickly out the doors at once while he held the soldier in talk so that the soldier could not slip in while the souls were going out. When it was done, the soldier was set off for heaven with two hundred and fifty sinful souls behind him, marching in a column of rout as the soldier made them for the sake of order and decency. Well, they marched on and on and on and on and on, and in the end they came to heaven and stopped before the very gates of paradise. And the holy apostle, standing in the gateway of paradise, said, Who are you? Well, I am the soldier who hung death in a sack, he says, and I have brought 250 sinful souls from hell and hope that God will pardon my sins and let me into paradise. And the apostles went to the Lord and told him that the soldier had come and brought with him 250 sinful souls. And the Lord said, Let in the sinful souls, but do not let in the soldier. The apostles went back to the gateway and opened the gates and told the souls that they might come in. But when the soldier tried to march in at the head of the company, they stopped him and said, No, soldier, there is no place for you here. So the soldier took one of the sinful souls aside and gave him the sack. And he tells him, As soon as you are through the gates of paradise, open the sack and shout, Into the sack, soldier! And you will do this because I brought you here from hell. And the sinful soul promised to do this for the soldier. But when the sinful soul went through the gates into paradise, for very joy, he forgot about his promise to the soldier, and he threw away the sack somewhere in paradise, where it may still be lying to this day. And so the soldier, after waiting a long time, went slowly back to earth. Death would not take him. There was no place for him in paradise, and no place for him in hell. And for all I know, he may be living yet. Loved that story. That was a great one. It was one of my favorite folk tales. I love that. I've always enjoyed that story. Well, folks, we hope that you uh, very much enjoyed our second annual Halloween Tales by the Campfire and yet another rendition 
of what you'll find on Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. We'd like to give a shout out to our first uh, paying sponsor, Raven's Loft. That's our family shop here located in uh, London, Missouri. It's your one-stop gaming, vintage toy, and collectible shop where you can find Star Wars, Transformers, G.I. Joe, comics, vinyl records, role-play gaming, Magic the Gathering, and so much more. We're located here at 223 West Commercial, downtown Lebanon, and also in our second location, uh, also here in Lebanon, at the Heartland Antique Mall. We'd like to thank Ravensloft for, again, supporting Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, <laughs> using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing. And thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. Um, and I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.